Now, I'm going to give you a, a truth, and it's not very profound. Those are the ones I'm best at. The ones that are too profound kind of make my head hurt. So I'm going to give you a very non-profound truth, okay, something you know. Something that, something that comes from God is going to be completely different than something that comes from anywhere else. I know, it's not very profound, is it? However, that's exactly what James has been telling us in the last part of James chapter 3. He's been talking about godly wisdom. And what he says is godly wisdom is completely different from any other source of wisdom you might find on this earth or beyond this earth. In the last part of chapter 3, James makes the application that if my words come from a place other than God's wisdom, if that is where the source of my words come from, those words are going to have a completely different effect on somebody than if I speak with God's wisdom operating. And so in all cases, words that don't have their source in God's wisdom are going to be detrimental and destructive and harmful to that person that I'm speaking to in one way or another. Now, in James chapter 3, verse 18, he begins to wrap up this whole discussion. Uh, he moves on. He, he certainly stays with the whole context of words, but at the same time, he moves on a bit, and we'll see that as we walk through this this evening. What he's saying here in verse 18 is that if we choose to use words uh, that, that are not from God or words that are from God, the effect is going to be apparent by the, what, what we say and how it affects those that we talk to. So we need to choose our source of wisdom as God's wisdom as we speak. Now look at verse 18, if you would, James chapter 3. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now, Sandy is smiling about this verse. This verse was a verse that our daughter had to learn in cubbies back in the Iwana way many years ago. And we remember her going over this verse over and over and over, and she got it, obviously. But we know the verse very, very well because we've heard this verse thousands of times over the time of her uh, trying to memorize that. Uh, what he's saying is this. There are two words here that, that he's using. Rather, I should say there's two words in Scripture that apply to moral purity. One is the word holiness, and the other is the word righteousness. Now, in almost every case when the words, these words are used, holiness refers to moral character, and righteous, righteousness refers to moral actions. So the moral character is holiness. Moral actions is righteousness. For example, God is morally pure in his character. That makes him holy. That makes him who he is. God is also righteous. That is, everything that God does is always morally right. It's the morally right thing to do. James uses the word here, righteousness. He's speaking of doing the right thing, doing the moral thing in terms of our behavior, in terms of our activity. And James says here that righteousness bears fruit. So if you do the right thing, it's going to bear certain kinds of fruit. And the fruit I believe he's speaking of goes back to chapter 17, or verse 17 rather, when he speaks of good fruits. So when we do the morally right thing, a good thing's result. And notice that these good fruits come as a result of God's wisdom. And so God's wisdom results in us doing the right thing, and doing the right thing results in good fruit being produced. And the seed of those good fruits is placed in the soil of peace. That's what he's saying to us in verse 18. The soil that we place these, good, these seeds into uh, come from those whose desire is to make peace with those around them who have a desire for peace. So we have the seed that comes by way of our desire to do good works, and we have the soil that, that comes from our desire to have peace with those around us. And the combination of those two things, the desire to do good works and the desire for peace, results in good fruit being produced. And the starting point for all of that is the wisdom of God. So what that says to me is this. I will never produce good fruit in my life if I'm not doing good works. Uh, if I'm not living righteously, if I'm not seeking peace, I will not have good fruit. And therefore, the believer who chooses to live by worldly wisdom or by the wisdom of the flesh or by the wisdom of the devil will have a life that is lacking in two areas specifically. It will lack in producing good fruit 
that will lack in producing peace. That will be the result or the lack of result that they'll find by living wisdom other than the wisdom of God. So if you know somebody or if you yourself at times uh, are not using words of peace, if you know somebody uh, specifically with their words uh, stirs up trouble in places or puts believers against each other in conflict, here's what we know. We know they are not operated by God's wisdom. They simply can't be. If we know a believer who does things to get other believers against them, each other, uh, who does things to create conflict among other believers, and there are believers who choose to do that, that seems to be their mission in life, is to create conflict among other believers, we know that person is not living by God's wisdom. And if we find ourselves doing those things, we know that we also are not operating by God's wisdom. We know that we have allowed the flesh or the world or the devil to creep in and influence how we think about things. Now, I'm going to say something that should be so obvious to us, I shouldn't even have to say it. But because of the behavior of believers in the church today, not this church specifically, just the church in general, it may not be as obvious, obvious as I think, and so I'm going to say it. If we are causing division or dissension in the body of Christ, if we are attacking other believers or turning other believers against each other, that is not the work of God. God's not in it. And I don't care how a person tries to reposition it uh, to make it look like they're doing God's work. Unless that division is over a clear doctrinal issue, a clear biblical standard, it is not God's work. And even then, uh, if it's a doctrinal issue, a biblical issue, we point out the doctrine without attacking the believer who's promoting it. We can't find many good reasons in Scripture to to speak badly of another believer in Jesus Christ. Very difficult to find that. In fact, you can't find it. As much as this flesh wants to do it, it's all the flesh. There is not a great deal of scriptural justification for anybody attacking another person in the body of Christ. The best option for us is simply to remove that as an option and surrender the control of our tongue to the control of the Spirit of God and let him control what we say and do. Life will be much calmer and much more peaceful as we each do that very simple thing. Just surrender our words to the words of the Holy Spirit of God. And with that verse 18, as I say, he is talking about the, the, the words and the godly wisdom and so forth, but he's also shifting. Because notice again, he's talking about sowing in peace. He's talking about focusing on peace and the need for peace among those who know the Lord. And so from that jumping place, we walk into chapter 4. And in chapter 4, he goes into a much deeper consideration of what he introduced to us in chapter 3 and verse 18. Uh, chapter 3 was a very, very difficult chapter. Practically speaking, it hit us all. Well, chapter 4 is not going to be a whole lot better. I'll just give you the warning right now. So uh, keep your band-aids out. You're going to need them as we go through this thing. (laughs) Now, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? The question is, why are people angry and fighting and have conflict with each other? In James chapter 3, he speaks of bitter envy that causes strife among believers. Now he says, look at verse 1 again, Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members. So what he's speaking about in chapter 3, again speaking about strife among believers, in chapter 4, he's speaking about larger conflicts for sure, but also individual conflicts as well. He's talking about any war, any fighting that occurs among two people or among two groups, among two nations, whatever it might be. Why do those things occur? Why do, where do those wars and fightings come from? Why is it that nations can't get along? Why is it that there is so much conflict among people? Uh, you are aware of this, but I'll just remind you of it. We are living in a nation that's perhaps more polarized than any time in our history. Amen. Divisions against each other. Uh, we are living in a world where wars and uh, conflicts begin almost daily, and with no particular concern or forethought whatsoever, they just start. 
Uh, people and nations evolve themselves in conflict that's, that seem to have nothing all to do with them, and they evolve themselves in it anyway. And if you read your history, and I'm sure you have, if you read your history, the history of the world is really nothing more than a history of nations and people fighting with each other. <laughs> that's basically what it is, and even for the Scripture, right on through. On a large scale, small scale, that's what history really tells us. So it's a great question James asks. Why is that the case? Why does that happen? I mean, if we know the cause of it, if we know why these wars and fightings are occur, maybe we can address the cause and stop the conflict from occurring. Well, James, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, lays the blame squarely on one place. Again, look at the verse. Come they not hence, even of your lusts. <laughs> what is the cause of all the wars and all the fightings among us? James says it's all because of lust. Now, of course, the historians and the social scientists and the psychologists have much more extensive, much more elaborate explanations for why these wars occur. And I would tell you, just put all that in the trash and look at what God's word says. God gives a very clear answer. People have wars and fightings among them on whatever level because people are lusting after things. Now, uh, lust is nothing more than a strong desire. That's what lust is. And in, most, in the most common use of that word, a strong desire for the wrong thing. More than likely, that's what the word refers to. The definition of lust sort of has, has embedded in it the idea of the desire for things that we shouldn't have or don't need or shouldn't desire. And James says wars and fightings occur because of those desires. Wars occur because people desire power and control. Wars occur because people desire wealth and riches. Conflicts occur because people desire pleasure and excitement. And I could list many, many more for you. You get the idea. Somebody has a strong desire for something, and the thing they want is not being offered to them willingly, and so they decide to get it by conflict instead. They'll take it. Uh, for example, Russia wants territory that belongs to the Ukraine because Russia wants to reestablish the R Russian Empire, and they see uh, the Ukraine as a great stepping stone to do that. They want all the power they had before uh, they dissolved. Uh, Ukraine is a major stepping stone toward that. Uh, Ukraine also possesses petroleum and a number of grains, and Russia could benefit from all that. Now, the Ukrainian people don't want to give up their land. They don't want to give up what they have. And so they have resisted surrendering to what Russia has pushed to them, and the result is a conflict that's been occurring for well over a year now. The reason for that war is lust. <laughs> Bottom line, that's why it's occurring. Every one of us in this room, everybody listening, has the capacity to lust after something. And therefore, everybody in this room has the capacity to create conflict, to get what we want, what we're lusting after. Look at verse 2. Ye lust, and ye have not. Ye kill, and desire to have, and cannot attain. Ye fight and war, that ye have not, because ye ask not. Now, boil all that down. Here's what James, this fly, he comes every day we teach, he comes I need to buy a fly swatter and keep this thing in here and swat him next time I see him. Sorry, just a little diversion there. Anyway, what James is saying here is that we have all these lusts inside us and we act on those lusts. We do whatever we can do to obtain what we don't have, even to the point of killing somebody to get what we want. And so we fight and we war and with all that effort and with all the harm that we do in the process, we still don't get what we're after. <laughs> Uh, we expend all this effort to obtain, and we still come up short. And what is implied in what James is saying here is not that the object of the lust is not obtained. Rather, the pleasure of satisfying that desire is not obtained. No matter how much a person gets, if this rust, lust is raging inside them, it will never be enough. They'll always want more. 
I'll go to Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs chapter 27. Uh, Solomon has a few things to say about this. So I'm going to have you turn to Proverbs and look at a couple of passages there and see what Solomon says. Uh, James is saying here, it's not that you don't get what you want as far as the object. It just doesn't provide the pleasure you hoped that it would. It doesn't provide, uh, satisfy the desire like you'd hoped it would. Uh, Proverbs chapter 27, look at verse 20. He says that hell and destruction are never full. Watch it now. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. Now, that's a great observation of human nature. The eyes of man are never satisfied. No matter what they get, they always want more. If they're operating on the basis of fleshly lust, it's never going to be enough. And the problem with fleshly lust is a problem that, that is not solved by providing the desire. That doesn't solve it. It goes much deeper than that. And that's why a person will get what they want and immediately begin to look, look for something else because they're never satisfied. I'll go to Proverbs chapter 6. Flip back a few pages. Go to Proverbs chapter 6. And look at verse 34. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 34. It says, For jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom. Neither will he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. <laughs> he gets all this stuff and he gets all these things and all these needs apparently are satisfied. And he neither will he rest content. It doesn't happen. So go back now to James chapter four and look at the end of verse two. James draws a conclusion here. He says again, ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Wars and fighting folks are not a social problem. They are not a political problem. They are not a psychological problem. Wars and fighting are a spiritual problem. Something's wrong spiritually, when, uh, which creates this need to pursue these wrong desires and these fleshly lusts. People fight and war because they refuse to get what they need from God. And to be happy with whatever it is that God gives them. They're not satisfied with that. Uh, these folks who he's talking about here, and if we do this, we're included in this whole group, are afraid to ask God because if they ask God for what they want, he'll say no to them and they won't get it. So rather than ask him, they just decide on a way to get it for themselves. They figure out a way to get it for themselves without having to ask God for it. And usually where that goes, according to what James has here, is taking something by force, taking something in a way that causes conflict with somebody else. But we've got to have it. We've got to have it. And that seems like the only way to get it, the only way we're sure to get it, because God might say no if we ask him. Now, look at verse 3. He says in verse 2, ye have not because ye ask not. Verse 3, ye ask. Okay, so now you've decided to ask. The conscience has gotten the better of us, and we realize we really need to ask God for these things rather than using our, our own efforts to get it. And so we ask. But notice what he says. Ye ask and receive not. Why? Because ye ask amiss. You ask in the wrong way. This may surprise you, folks, but I'm going to tell you. A believer can sin by praying. <laughs> Did you know that? A believer can sin by praying. A believer can talk to God, and the entire time he's talking to God, he's sinning while he's doing it. We can sin by asking for the wrong things. If we're asking God to supply some, uh, something to satisfy this fleshly lust that we have, we sin by entering into that prayer. Be very careful what you ask God for. Make sure it's, it's the right thing. And we can also sin if we pray, but we ask for the, in, with the wrong motive, the wrong reason behind it. 
If we ask for success or power, and the goal of that request is not to further the work of the Lord or the cause of Christ, we have sinned by asking because the motive is wrong. We ask, but the goal is not for God's will to be done. The goal is that we might get what we're lusting after. And so we ask, but we ask with the wrong motive. When we ask God for anything, we must come to him and ask him for the right things, and we must ask him with the right purpose. We must ask for something so that God's will might be done. Listen to me. That is the only pure motive to ask God for anything, so that his will might be done. That must be the overriding thought that we have, no matter what we ask God for or express a thought to him about. It's got to be about his will. Uh, we must ask God for something that improves our spiritual walk. We must ask God for things that make us more like him. We must ask God for things that help draw us draw uh, others to the Savior. When we ask God for something, we must have a motive like that behind it. And if those are not our motives or something like that when we ask, then all we are trying to do is satisfy our lust. And God will never be, be glorified if that is our motive. If my motive is just to get what I want so I'm satisfied, God is not glorified in any of that. And, and it's asking for the wrong reason and it's asking for the wrong things. If I ask for something that glorifies me or gives me the success I want or satisfies my pride in some way, James would say you're asking amiss. You're asking for the wrong reason, asking, with the wrong, asking for the wrong things. If I'm seeking the things of God, God will provide those things to me. Listen to me. God will provide for you everything that you need. If I don't have this, you must not need it. <laughs> because if you needed it, he'd give it to you. If you're walking his will, he gives you exactly what you need. If I'm seeking the things of God, God's going to give them to me. If I'm seeking the things of the world, God's going to deny me those things. And if I seek for something that, that may even be acceptable for me to have, but my motive is wrong when I ask for it, more than likely, God is not going to provide that thing to me. God is not going to give me anything that increases me and decreases him. He's just not going to do it. It's not going to happen. He will not give me anything where I get the glory and he does not get the glory. And that's why we've got to realize as believers, every good thing that we have comes from him. And that's why I love our praise time at the beginning of our service. That is what we need to be doing much more of. <laughs> Praising God for the good things he gives us because any good thing that happened to you this week came from him. He provides all of that for us. And he'll not give me anything where I, where he gets, where I get the glory and he doesn't. Now, all we need to do is glorify him and then use whatever he gives us for his glory and so that we might achieve his purpose in the process. Now, look at verse 4. He says, The adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the, that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, he introduces a topic here that Paul speaks a lot about as well. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to go there in just a second. But James says, Those who lust after the wrong things... Those who seek, seek things to satisfy their own lust and not for God's glory, those folks he calls adulterers and adulteresses. That's pretty rough talk. Now, he couldn't get away with that these days. That would hurt somebody's feelings, I'm sure. <laughs> he compares these folks to those who have an affair with somebody who's not their spouse. Now, they're finding pleasure in somebody that's not intended for them. Now, what's all that mean? Well, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul talks a lot about this, and we're not going to go through every portion of where he does, but I'd like you to look at this one at least. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And when you get to look at verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. He says, Know ye not that your members, are you, or that your bodies are the members of Christ? 
Your body belongs to Jesus Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul speaks of fornication here. And what he's referring to here generally is any form of sexual infidelity. So it carries the idea of somebody physically joining themselves to somebody else inappropriately. And he uses this physical behavior to illustrate a spiritual condition. As he speaks of a person putting themselves uh, to, the, to a harlot, joining themselves to a harlot. And using that as a picture, he refers to anybody who joins themselves spiritually to someone other than Jesus Christ. If we read through the entire passage, we're not going to. Paul identifies behaviors that are of the flesh and therefore behaviors that a believer should not be involved in. And if they do those things in comparison, if we do the behaviors of the flesh, what Paul is saying to us is this. It's like having an affair on Jesus Christ. That's what he says. They've made someone else their partner instead of Jesus Christ. They've been unfaithful to Jesus Christ as a result. And so that person is a spiritual fornicator, a spiritual adulterer. Now, that's a pretty graphic picture of sin. I mean, we like to kind of, you know, gloss over this sin thing. That's pretty graphic. Sin goes beyond just making a sinful choice. I think we're prone at times to minimize our sin and the effect of sin in our lives. Here we have a picture of sin. Uh, We have this picture that if we confess it, or rather if we sin and confess it, God forgives it, and we move on until we sin again. Now, that's all true. That's all true. But we've got to add to the picture that when we sin, whatever we have made the object of that sin is a betrayal of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have betrayed him in that sin. Now, he'll still forgive it. Absolutely. He'll forgive that sin. Just understand that at the moment of that sin. And as long as you're participating in that sin, you are betraying your relationship with the the Lord. It's like a husband or a wife going out on their spouse and confessing it and moving on until they do the same thing again. Now, again, it's confessed, it's forgiven, absolutely. But during that time, there's a violation of the relationship. The forgiveness is there. We cannot miss the impact of that sin. That sin has severely compromised our relationship with the Lord when we choose to do that. Now, with that thought in mind, go back to James chapter 3 and look at verse 4 again. That now gives us a better context of what James is saying here. So then he says, ye adulterers and adulteresses. He says, whenever you do something that the lost world does, whenever you involve yourself in behavior and the thinking of the world, whenever you choose to follow some sinful lust, some sinful desire, what you have done, look at the word there at the end of the verse, or rather in the middle of the verse, you have created enmity with God. Enmity with God. Now, what is enmity? A great old English word that simply means deep-seated hatred, hostility, animosity, and ill will. That's what enmity is. That is what is created toward God by us every time we follow sinful lust and every time we do what the world would do. Every time I follow my own way against God's way, I create with God, a deep, I present to God a deep-seated hatred and hostility and animosity and ill will. Every time. Every time. That's what's created. That shows us the level that our relationship with God drops to every time we sin. 
When I sin, I create a situation as if I was having an affair on the Lord, and I also create a climate in that relationship of hatred and hostility and animosity toward God. That's what sin is. That's what sin is. And that situation is not remedied until I confess that sin. And the longer that I wait before I confess that thing, and the longer I pursue that particular uh, route of whatever it is, uh, the deeper I go into this hostile climate with God, and the deeper I go into this unclean relationship with something else. And if I and finally, uh, if I choose to, to confess that thing, or rather if I choose to continue in that thing and not confess it and get right with God, God's going to take you to his woodshed finally. Hebrews chapter 12. Read the first part of that sometime. You'll find out all about it. I've been to the woodshed a few times. I don't care to ever go back. <laughs> not a good place to be. So notice the verse. Verse 4 again. The adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. If you are a friend of the world, you are the enemy of God. What he says is this. You cannot divide your allegiance. And that's what sin does. Sin divides our allegiance. Sin says, I'm going to somehow try to accommodate two parties that are completely and totally opposed to each other. But I'm going to try and make that work. Jesus Christ makes it clear in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, it won't work. And James makes it clear here as well. It is simply not possible to do. And the real fact is, folks, whenever I make friends with the world, whenever I involve myself with the behavior and the attitudes and the thinking of the world, I put myself in direct opposition to God at that point. James says, I become God's enemy. Now, the world is fine with that. The world has no trouble with that whatsoever. If you want to worship God and be involved with, with the things of the world at the same time, the world couldn't care less. They're fine for you to do that. It's God that has a problem with it. God will not allow divided allegiances. God will not allow one foot in the world and one foot in the church, so to speak. In fact, the whole reason God sent fire down on Mount Carmel on the prophets of Baal was for this very issue. Before he ever did that, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21, Elijah asked this question to the people. He says to them, how long halt you between two opinions? He said, if the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Uh, Elijah said, you can't walk that line. It's going to be one or the other. If you want to walk with the world, walk with the world. But don't try to do both. Pick, make a choice and walk one way or the other. Don't try to sit on that fence. You can't do it. God, again, will not accommodate Divide allegiance. So as long as we do what the world does, as long as we accommodate this flesh, as long as we pursue those sinful lusts, we are Christians, we are saved, we are going to heaven, and we're the enemies of God. <laughs> All of that is true. Uh, the world has done a great, great job of recategorizing and reclassifying sin. And it's been more and more obvious as time has gone on. And I think what has happened in some cases, again, I'm not speaking to anybody here. I'm just speaking in general now. I think because the world has reclassified sin, there are believers who have reduced their stand on sin as well. It's, it's affected the way they think. Can I tell you this, this evening, folks, something you already know, but I think it's worth saying. God has not changed his mind about sin. <laughs> not a bit. He stands just like he did today, like he did 6,000 years ago. Nothing's changed. He feels about it like he always felt about it. And God will not condone sin in the life of a child of God. He won't condone it. He won't permit it. And if we allow the flesh, less of the flesh to influence what we do to the point of creating conflict with those around us, we have become God's enemy and will continue to be God's enemy until we confess that thing and forsake it and make it right. 
Now, there may be those who are so consumed by their lusts that they do whatever they want to do and take the risk that God will be their enemy. They want to do what they want to do so badly. They may know this thought somewhere in their head, but they want to do what they want to do so badly. They take their chances on that. Before we make that choice, I think it's very good to understand exactly what it means to be the enemy of God. I'll read you the Psalms sometimes and watch how David talks about his enemies. And look at what David asked God to do to his enemies. <laughs> and look how the God left that in Scripture as though that was a perfectly fine thing to ask about. Not a pretty picture at all if you read through that thing. It's not a wise choice. I just want to tell you, folks, it's not a wise choice to make yourself the enemy of God. That is just not a smart thing to do. <laughs> not at all. Being his enemy means this. There's no peace. You will be constantly stirred. Uh, being God's enemy means that his mercy is not as available as it might be otherwise. God lets some things happen that he might not let happen otherwise. He'll let them happen because of your, our choice to walk in that sin. Being God's enemy means for the time that we are in that sin, we have chosen to face life by ourselves and make our own choices and accept the consequences of whatever choice we make. God is no longer going before us like he was before. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I want to read you a rather lengthy portion of Scripture here, but I would like to read this, and I'd like you to put yourself kind of in the place of what, who he's talking to and just see how it looks when God becomes your enemy. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, uh, Moses, God is speaking here, rather, of the apple of his eye, his nation of Israel. These are God's chosen people. And notice what he says to them if they choose not to follow his commands, if they choose to walk in sin. I want to begin reading in verse 15. Now, he's speaking to Israel, but just think about this as being God's enemy as a child of God. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I have commanded thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. So a person who chooses not to hearken unto the voice of God, who chooses not to do the commandments of God, all these curses come upon them. Curses shalt thou be in the city, and curses shalt thou be in the field, and curses shalt thy be thy basket and thy store. Curses shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke in all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed, and until thou perish quickly, because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. The Lord shall make thy pestilence cleave unto thee, until he have consumed thee from off the land, whither thou goest to possess it. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with an extreme burning and with a sword and with the blasting and with the mildew. And they shall pursue thee until thou perish. And thy heaven shall uh, that is over thee, thy head shall be brass and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. The Lord shall make the rain of the, the thy land powder and dust from heaven shall it come down upon thee until thou be destroyed. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shall be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And the carcass shall be meat unto all the fowls of the air, unto the beasts of the field, and no man shall fray them away. The Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt and with the emeralds and with the scab and with the itch, whereof thou canst not be healed. The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, and thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy, wife, in thy ways, and thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. 
I'll stop right there. That's enough. Now, again, this is to Israel. This is not to a child of God under the grace of God. However, however, notice God's attitude when his own people turn against his commandments. These are not the world he's talking about. These are not the the nations around. He's talking to his own people there. And I'm going to tell you something. Just in the 15 or 16 verses we read, you can't find one thing where he didn't touch on it. Everything's touched by it. Everything is affected by it. Now, I know we're under grace, like I say. I know that at the same time, if we choose to follow our own lust, we risk being becoming God's enemy. And that's the attitude. That's the attitude. He may not do those specific things, but that's the attitude he has. And I'm going to tell you, that at the very least should make me think twice before I choose to pursue my own lusts. That should at least make me think twice before I choose to do something as opposed to what the word of God says. I at least should give that some thought before I do it, because that means when I do that, I become God's enemy and I open the door to whatever God feels he needs to do to get me back on track. That is no place that any believer wants to find themselves. And it all comes with the lust of the flesh and doing what we want to do instead of doing what God wants us to do. If I involve myself in the lust of the flesh and the sin of the world, uh, what will happen is the world will approve of me. The world will smile on me and be happy with me. But listen, let me tell you something, folks. The world can't provide you one thing that you need. If you go looking there, you're not going to find it. They find they give you stuff, but that's not what you need. Uh, It doesn't matter if the world is happy with you or not. There's no gain from being friends with the world. Keeping God satisfied, according to Malachi chapter 3, opens the windows of heaven. And God says, just prove me and watch what I do if you just follow what I tell you to do. I'm going to pour out blessings on you. You can't even imagine, God says, what I'm going to give you. And everything he gives you is exactly what you need. And then beyond that, he just showers you with all kinds of stuff. Overloads you, David says, with benefits. You see, that's what happens when we choose to follow him. And that's what happens when we choose not to follow him. It's just a matter of who you want to be enemies with. You can be friends with the world and enemy of God and get all of what God's going to give you. Or be friends with God, enemy of the world, and take what the world gives you. I go the other direction every time. I'll be a friend of God and let the world be as angry with me as they want to. I'll only be here a few more years. They're going to take me out of here anyway, so uh, what's it matter? (laughs) All right, go back to James. Look at verse uh, chapter 5, or chapter 4, rather, look at verse 5. He says, do you think... That the scripture saith in vain. Isn't that an interesting question? Do you think God just, you know, was just uh, using up words when he said this? <laughs> Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now, you are aware there's two spirits inside you tonight. You've got a fleshly human spirit, and as believers in Jesus Christ, you also have the Holy Spirit of God inside you. Now, the human spirit is attached to your flesh and does what the flesh wants to do. The Holy Spirit is from God and does whatever God wants it to do. Now, if there are wars and fightings among us, which spirit is operating? Well, it's not the Holy Spirit. (laughs) He's not going to cause those troubles. It's the fleshly spirit. It's our spirit. What is the fruit of the spirit? Well, the Bible tells us over there in Galatians, one of the fruits of the spirit is peace. So if the spirit of God is operating inside me, there's not going to be wars and fightings. Those don't come from God's spirit. God's spirit, rather. And there are various places in the scripture that tell us that the main work of the fleshly spirit is envy. Now, I know people dispute that. 
I know we're living in, in this age, and I suppose it's always been that way, where man is glorified and human beings are glorified and people are glorified. And so there's nothing wrong with people. You know, they have that, that whole theory, that, you know, man comes out as a blank slate and just adds to that as he goes along. Man comes out perfect and then screws himself up. Well, that's not the case. Man comes out totally sinful. Man comes out conceived in sin. And so men, uh, the, the, the scientists and the social scientists and so forth, they may try to build mankind up and profess that the intents of mankind are always good and not evil. That's not at all what Scripture says. What they say makes no difference whatsoever. Scripture says, here's the conclusion. If it comes from the spirit of the flesh, envy is the main product. If my earthly spirit, if my fleshly spirit is operating, what I'm going to be doing is envy. Now, we covered that a great deal back in chapter 3. We're not going to talk about all that again. But here's what I want you to take note of. Lust leads to envy. Lust leads to envy. Having a fleshly desire leads me to begrudge somebody else for what they have that I want. And that leads to strife, which leads, leads to wars, which leads to fighting among people. And there is a simple antidote to this matter of lust and envy. It begins in the first part of verse 6. Look at it if you would. I'm going to read verse 5 with it. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more, what's the word? Grace. He giveth more grace. The antidote to envy starts with the grace of God. It starts by me understanding how much God has given to me that I in no way deserve. <laughs> and what he has given to me has cost me absolutely nothing. Yeah. Romans 8.31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things. <laughs> Jesus Christ, through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross, God opened that door, and therefore, by the grace of God, He gives us freely all things. Whatever God thinks you need, He'll give it to you, and it won't cost you a cent. They're freely, no cost, no strings attached. So when that flesh starts lusting after other things, here's the first thing a believer ought to do. Think about God's grace. When that flesh begins to lust after things, remind yourself, uh, you may not have all the world has to offer you, but what you do have is so, 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 so much better. <laughs> you may not have what they have. You've got something they'll never have by uh, going to the world for it. You've got God's grace. You've got God's grace. Now, that being the case, uh, we should be characterized by something other than lust and envy. That grace should provide something different to us. I'm going to have you turn to a couple of more verses, and we're going to wrap it up tonight. Go to Philippians chapter 4. If I'm operating in God's grace, if I'm not lusting and envying, what is my life going to look like instead? Philippians chapter 4, I'll look at verse 11. Here's what Paul says. Not that I speak in respect of want. For I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be, what's the word? Content. Content. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And look at verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with, what's the word? Contentment is great gain, and having food and raiment, raiment let us be there with, what's the word? Content. Content. If I really understand God's grace, if I really understand what has been freely given to me by that grace, what is the result? Contentment. Contentment. And contentment is the antidote for lust 
and envy. If I settle myself in God's grace, if I understand that all that I have is because of the grace of God, I won't want what anybody else wants. I will be more than satisfied with what I have because I've got God's grace. What else could I have? What other could I possibly get that could be greater to me than what God's grace has provided to me? What others have couldn't mean anything to me. It couldn't mean anything less to me than what it does. So when I find myself caught up in lust and envy, which is going to lead to conflict and strife, that's what James tells us, if I find myself caught up in lust and envy, what does that mean? It means I've lost sight of God's grace. I've lost sight of God's grace. If there are wars and fightings between me and other believers, it means that I've lost sight of the grace of God. It means the things of the world and the things of the flesh have become more important to me than what has been provided to me by the grace of God. And if I find myself contentious and in conflict and at odds with other people, I must refocus myself back on the grace of God. Back on the grace of God. If you know a believer who's contentious, and angry and confrontational, that attitude gives every indication that what they need is a good dose of the awareness of God's grace. That's what they need. And if I find myself in that position, if I find myself contentious and angry and confrontational and at odds with other believers, it gives every indication that what I need is a good dose of the awareness of the grace of God. If you find yourself in conflict, here's what I would suggest you do. Get yourself a concordance or get online and get yourself a concordance there and follow the word grace through Scripture. That'll take care of your envy. That'll take care of your conflict. That'll take care of all the strife that's going on. You will be so aware of God's grace and so consumed by God's grace that the only possible result will be contentment. Praise God, I've got his grace. I may not have a lot else. I've got the grace of God and nothing else matters. And a contentment eliminates envy. And without envy, there is peace and quiet among God's children, just as God intended it to be. Amen. You know what we are tonight, folks? We are children of grace. Amen. Children of grace. That's why you belong to the body of Christ tonight, because you are a child of grace. Now, what we need to do is keep that our focus. And as we meet other believers, realize every other believer that I meet is also a child of God's grace. And if we approach them that way, instead of other ways, there will be no contention, there will be no strife, there will be no wars, there will be no conflict. We'll just be celebrating together the grace of God. <laughs> and that will solve every other problem we might have. All right, stand.